Well, good morning. Welcome uh, to day two of uh, our time together. And uh, I, we are really thankful that uh, you're here in this regard. I'm thinking as we enter into day two uh, about a young man who was being interviewed to be an usher at a local theater uh, back in our state. And uh, they were asking him a series of questions. And one of the questions they asked him is, uh, in the midst of being an usher, is in the event of a fire, uh, what are your thoughts about what to do in the event of a fire, should a fire break out in our theater? And the uh, prospective usher responded by saying, don't worry about me, I get out fine. <laughs> so he didn't get the job, as you might imagine. Uh, in, in many ways, uh, this is three days in which we're trying to help un ourselves as well as help um, understand how to better provide an, a climate and an environment, an atmosphere in our local communities of faith for being attentive and being concerned about others around us. Because like I talked about yesterday with the illustration from the Formula One racing, there are times, because the cars are fueled by methanol, there are times when a fire breaks out that you can't see the flames, but you can literally see the car eroding right before your eyes, because the flames that run on methanol are, of course, invisible. We live in a world where people are on fire. You can't see the flames, but you do see uh, their lives eroding right before your eyes, and we've all tasted of that in our own life personally. Yesterday... Uh, we spent the majority of our time talking about, uh, in many ways, the four critical questions that have to do with the mindset that is at the heart of a conviction behind evangelism, uh, behind having a culture where people are attentive to sharing their faith and have a burden for that, behind even a, a culture where that is at the heart of uh, what we do as a church. And we talked about four important questions really being settled at the heart of that, just to remind you. We talked about the first question being of, uh, have we lost a theology of the lost? And we talked about that for a little bit. Um, a second question was, are we convinced that Jesus is the way and not a way? A third question we talked about was, have we divorced justice from, evang or divorced evangelism from justice? We talked about also the importance of uh, words are necessary in the sharing of the gospel. Uh, that as popular and as sexy as the line is, preach the gospel, if necessary, use words. Words are always necessary. Even Jesus himself had to come alongside on the road to Emmaus, the two that were processing the events that had just happened in Jerusalem, and spend time helping them connect the dots between the meaning of his death, burial, and resurrection and what it meant for their lives. Even Jesus had to explain the gospel about himself. So we talked about that. The fourth question we talked about is, uh, are we more concerned with what we have to lose than what others have to gain? Um, and that's important just for us personally. Anytime you think about making the step to put in a good word for Jesus, you have to overcome the concern of, do, do, am I more concerned with what I have to lose than what this person has to gain? And this attitude from Romans 1 and 16, where he talks about, I'm obligated to Jews and to Greeks. I owe it to them. I owe it to the person. I've been entrusted with the gospel. 
I have something precious that's going to make a difference, not just for their life beyond the grave, but their life before the grave. Because as Paul said in 2 Timothy 1, 9 and 10, Jesus Christ came to shed light on life and immortality, on life before the grave and life uh, beyond the grave. Amen? And so we talked about this, and this also has implications for us as a church. There are times where we become more preoccupied with what we have to lose than what others have to gain. And so those are four critical questions that were just at the heart of the mindset behind uh, becoming a more evangelistic person, developing a more evangelistic atmosphere and culture in the life of uh, our church. Day two, today, we're going to talk primarily about um, how to think about our corporate gatherings or our worship assemblies in the life of the church as it relates to uh, a culture of evangelism. I want you to know uh, tomorrow we're going to talk about what are things we do as leaders to help the evangelistic atmosphere in the life of our church. That's tomorrow. And I'm going to talk about the personal life of a leader. Churches do not drift into evangelism. They have to be led into evangelism. And as goes the head, so goes the body. I know Jesus is the head. I understand that. I'm talking about just as servant leaders in our communities of faith. So I'm going to talk tomorrow about the personal life of the leader, the servant leader. That's what we're going to talk about as well as what we can do as servant leaders in our communities of faith to cultivate this atmosphere of evangelism. So that's where we're headed tomorrow. Today, we're just going to talk about our corporate worship gatherings for a little bit. I want you to know the sum total of Christian living is, is not meant to be expressed in the 75-minute services we have together on the weekends. Okay. We can't put the entire weight of evangelism, nor can we put the entire weight of spiritual formation and discipleship on those 75 minutes. Are, are you with me? You understand that? So in us talking about this gathering, please don't hear us saying the sum total of evangelism and discipleship is expected to be done in 75 minutes. Okay? We're going to talk about this one hour out of 168 hours of our week. Okay. Uh, please hear me that this also has to involve the other 167 hours of your week. Okay? So, but we are going to talk about the corporate gathering during this time because we do think it can be of assistance. By the way, there's 168 hours in your week. Um, but it, we do believe it can be of assistance in this journey of helping people make an intentional decision to follow Jesus. That's what we're talking about here. One more thing I want to say just from the outset. We are, um, we're aware that we are in churches that are um, uh, of a larger size for our fellowship. Okay. Um, I grew up in a church of 100 people. Okay. Um, and I am largely the way I am because of the people who sowed Jesus into me in that church of 100 people, okay? There are strengths and weaknesses to every different kind of size of church. So we might use some examples that might be more fitting for the culture where we are that may not be fitting for your church culture. The most important thing we can do is we are simply using these as examples for how do I think through something I'm doing as a in my church with, with intentionality and from the purpose of mission. Amen? Amen? And so that's really what we want you to take is, is, how, is to walk away thinking through 
Um, what is behind an attempt we make in the life of our church that gets us further down the road of putting in a good word for Jesus and helping people make a decision to follow Jesus? You with me so far? Yeah. All right, I'm going to turn it over to my partner in crime here, our correspondent, Rick Ashley. Okay, so um, as Christmas and yesterday, his church is over 100 years old. Uh, my church has come up on its 70th anniversary. Only 2% of churches in America over 50 years old are growing, okay? We're proof that old churches can bring new life. Uh, they can happen. And we have seen uh, in our churches uh, growth, and we've seen growth in outreach. Our church uh, 20 years ago only had about 100 baptisms a year. We have about 400 a year now. That hasn't happened accidentally. That happened because we pursued it. That happened because we were intentional. And uh, it happened because of some strategies that we sacrificed to pursue at the cost of other things we gave up. Now, one of those strategies was we are going to maximize the potential of our weekend gatherings. Okay. Now, Chris is right. We recognize that as just a part of the strategy. And yet, in our culture, at least in Texas, you are foolish if you don't think that you can just blow off or do mediocre job on Sunday and reach lost people. The simplest and still the most effective way and the still the number one way people come to Christ in our church is a friend brings them to our assembly. Our assemblies are huge in the process of helping people come to Christ. And so we're going to say this morning, there are some things we've learned about how to help our assemblies maximize the potential to reach lost people. And uh, some of the things we say are unique to our circumstance, but a lot of the things we're going to say are, are, they are transcendent in the sense that they're portable. You can take them home to your church and do them as well. What I want to do in the beginning is just say why we think the assembly is critical to establishing an evangelist culture. Now, 15, 20 years ago, there was a thinking that kind of went across uh, a lot of churches, uh, and I appreciate what was behind a lot of it. You heard this word missional a lot. We need to live on mission. I totally buy that, and I'm totally for that. But what I didn't buy was the bifurcation that was often set up. We're going to be a missional church. We're not going to be an attractional church. You know, the last thing I'd want is my church to be attractive. I don't buy a lot of the thinking behind that. I really don't. I don't think Jesus ever looked at throngs and crowds of people coming to hear him teach and saying, we're doing something wrong, boys. You tell your friends to stop inviting their friends to come hear me teach. I just don't think that makes sense at all. Now, what I do believe is that the end is not just to get a lot of people together in a building. The end is to make disciples of Jesus. The end is to send people out. I said yesterday, we're not a battleship, we're an aircraft carrier. We use our assemblies to launch people out into mission. So the issue for me is not, is it mission or is it attraction? It is, are we going to leverage attraction for mission? Are we going to leverage attraction for mission? But the reality is, the single most effective way we have right now in our culture for reaching lost people is creating an environment on the weekend where our people say, I want to bring my friend to church. And that's something that we must maximize. We do it on purpose and we don't apologize for it. 
I, I am constantly telling my people, uh, you, you, the best thing you could do is bring your friend to church. They're going to hear the gospel. They're not going to be embarrassed. They're not going to be humiliated. And you're not going to be uh, feel awkward sitting by them. It is going to help you have the conversations that we need to have. Bring your friends to church. And again, in our culture, at least, uh, if you're thinking about Jesus, you're thinking about visiting a church. Uh, we remind people why those assemblies are so important. I remind you, Jesus went to assembly every week. It was his custom. We also believe Jesus comes to assembly. We both share a very strong theology of the Holy Spirit and his presence in the gathering. And that when you come together with the gathered people of God, you are going to have an experience of the manifest presence of God. You can't get at home watching online on your screen. And we really do believe that. A guy walked up to me just the other day. Uh, uh, he said, uh, Pastor, I don't know what's going on. I have never been, he's 30-something years old. I have never been in a church in my life, and I came today, and something's happening. And I just said, yeah, you're encountering the presence of God. And God is pursuing your heart. So we believe strongly in that. We believe that our gatherings uh, restore people, but we also think they restore people. Our gatherings give us the opportunity to remind member and guest of a better story and what's going on. We believe it's where people are transformed. We believe it's where the gospel is transmitted. And I would simply ask the question, if worship gatherings weren't important, why is Satan trying to outlaw them in every nation on earth where he can? There is something powerful. What did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 14? He was telling the church, get your act together. So that unbeliever walks in and he falls on his knees and says, surely God is in this place. We bring people to our church because they encounter the presence of God. And conversion and evangelism is a supernatural thing. We are at war against enemies of darkness. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. It requires the Spirit of God. And so we believe the assembly is a powerful place to encounter that Spirit. And so uh, we're going to just unapologetically for the next few minutes uh, challenge you to think through how can your worship gatherings on the weekend be powerful uh, tools to launch people into a search for God. So, with that in mind, and, and with that constant plea, bring your friend to church. Hey, it's a good question, Chris. Why aren't, why aren't why isn't that happening? I think there are a couple of uh, reasons why uh, we've struggled with having an invite culture uh, to our weekend worship services. One is, quite frankly, uh, our, our people don't have a passion for the lost. Uh, for reasons tied to, we talked yesterday, those four important questions. Uh, and so quite frankly, our, our, our people don't have a burden, quote unquote, for the lost. I think there's a second reason, and it has something to do with the fact they don't have much of a confidence that inviting the person to their church service is going to help more than hurt if they have a relationship with this person where they're working with them or they work out with them or they're in their neighborhood, uh, they, our, our member wants to have a measure of confidence that this is going to help this person on their journey more than hurt them on their journey. 
Uh, I'm mindful, uh, I was talking to somebody the other day who's in the world of uh, the restaurant business, and they were just saying, Chris, do you know how often in our research, do you know how often somebody repeats a negative experience at a restaurant they had, meaning verbally, they repeat a negative experience that they had at a restaurant to other people? You're six times more likely to talk about a negative experience at a restaurant than a positive experience at a restaurant. Because there's, it's just easier to spread bad news than good news. It's funner, quote unquote, on the surface. And so if you have a negative experience at a restaurant and you're drive by it, you might say something to, boy, I went there once. Or somebody might say, hey, have you been there? And that person says, no, I hadn't been there, but I had an aunt that went there. And, and people know this. And so um, uh, for a lot of people, they're not willing to take a risk to invite their friend to church because they don't have a lot of confidence that uh, is my friend going to have an oper- be, be moved further down the road toward Jesus or be set further back by what they see or what they witness. Now, we've talked now 18 minutes and haven't used a scripture yet, so let's use a scripture. Uh, I think about something that uh, the apostle said in Acts chapter 15 and verse 19. They were dealing with a different issue, but they said in this line, uh, let's, uh, we do not need to make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. And so one of our goals is, is I don't want to make it any more difficult for someone to turn to God or than it already is because there are already powers and principalities at work resisting them and turning to God. I don't want to make it any more difficult for someone to turn to God. So one question we're asking is, how can our gatherings be more of an opportunity and less of an obstacle mm-hmm. for someone to turn to God? But those are, um, those are two reasons why. One is, may not have a passion for a loss. Two is, they may not have a lot of confidence that this is going to help more than hurt uh, their friend who they have a concern for. Um, and that really brings us now to, okay... How can they be more of an opportunity and less of an obstacle? Our services, our gatherings. And uh, the first way is, I think uh, we can uh, really, if we can learn to recover seeing what we do through lost eyes. Rick's going to talk about this in just a second, but I'll just say this. Nothing may help you more down this road than you inviting a friend to church and asking them what they think. Nothing has helped me more than inviting my neighbors in my neighborhood, the men I work out with at the gym, the men I met with through Coppell Youth Football to come to the branch. And over time, through the years, they've helped me see what we do through lost eyes. I'm telling you, this will help you further down the road than reading the latest blog written by somebody in a coffee shop about what the lost think or don't think, and yet they won't even talk to the barista making their coffee. Can we talk? Because mm-hmm. yeah. a lot of what we think the lost think about our church is just informed by blogs we've read by angry people writing in coffee shops. Talk to your neighbor. Have a relationship. It, it, something can help you recover seeing things through quote-unquote lost eyes uh, by inviting people you personally know. And over time, they'll begin to open up to you. Let me give you one example of this. Turn over to Rick. How many of you do a meet and greet time at your church? We've been doing a meet and greet time for years at the branch. Years at the branch. I thought it was helping us. 
until I, what happened is we came to a meet, we do it in the middle of our service, meet and greet time. Hey, stand up, meet those around you. Here's what was happening. I kept bringing friends from my community and none of them were spoke to in the meet and greet time. Because in the meet and greet time, people were talking to people they already knew. And so now you, you've done something in an attempt to be a friendly place. You've only highlighted your unfriendliness by saying, we're going to have a meet and greet time and all the strangers weren't being met and greet. Lousy language, but you understand what I'm saying. And so now they left with a heightened awareness of how unfriendly we were because we had 90 seconds in our service designed to be friendly and they weren't being spoken to. Does this make sense? So we took it away and it upset all the members. Why are you doing this? Are you against fellowship? Well, no, we're just tired of you being unfriendly. <laughs> so we've had to work through this some. So, by the way, I'm just telling you, that's a story on us, that we don't have all this figured out. That's an example of seeing this through lost eyes. Yeah, so uh, you just reminded me of a story back when we lived in Abilene some years ago. My wife and I uh, lived in a home next to a couple, and they both flew planes at Dias Air Force Base. He flew for Mac, she flew for SAC. In fact, when President Reagan ordered the bombing in Libya, she flew the refueling planes that uh, kept the bombers uh, in the air. And so that, that's the level of capacity she had in the US government. She flew $100 million jets on bombing missions. We brought them to church. It was an awesome day, I thought. I thought my sermon was pretty good. I thought our music was pretty good. We took them out to eat. What was her first question? Do you not let women do anything at your church? I had not ever seen that. Everyone that stood up, everyone on the stage, everyone that passed out anything was a man. And here's a woman that flies $500 million airplanes that the government trusts her with. And the first thing she saw was, what could I do here? And it was so good for me to hear that question through her eyes. Now, here's my point. We are so comfortable and familiar with our churches, we have lost the capacity to see church through the eyes of the people we're trying to reach. Okay? You don't notice how old the carpet is in the nursery. Or your I, church smell. Yeah. You're used to the smell in the bathroom. I guarantee you that brand new mama with that little baby coming for the first time, she noticed that carpet in the nursery. Okay? that you have just put up with for years. Um, there are so many examples of things we don't see that the people we want to bring see. So we actually uh, hired a marketing firm some years ago at my church to say, help us see what we're not seeing. So get this, they actually paid 12 people who don't go to church at all to come unannounced on a Sunday and visit our church and write their reflections. Some of and, our members would like this job. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> they don't come something. to church either. It was helpful and it was disheartening. It was, it was eye-opening to see things we never saw. We had no idea how much insider language we use at our church. Well, we're just so thankful everyone's here, and be sure to sign up for Summer Spectacular. Go to the Hub down in 24-7. I just spoke in tongues to a lost person, <laughs> okay? Or, and this was shocking to us, not a single person understood communion. 
That tray passed with those big giant crackers. They had no idea. What am I supposed to do right now? One reason now that we use little pieces and not big giant crackers is for that one thing we learned. But more than that, we never do communion anymore without taking 30 to 60 seconds and explaining this is about what's about to happen. This is why we do this. And this is what we want you to think about why we do it. It's that kind of thinking that would be so powerful and helpful to us. See your church through the eyes of the very person you're wanting to try to reach. Because I promise you, we have become blinded to so many things that are obstacles to unbelievers. And we don't even notice them anymore. So that's the first thing we would suggest is see your church through lost eyes. And I will just tell you, you bring your unchurched lost friend and sit beside them on one Sunday and you'll be more aware than you ever have been of things that are awkward. Okay, let me just, let me just end with that and let's move on to the second thing we're going to suggest because let me tell you, people are visiting your church before they ever visit your church. Yeah, um, and they are. One, one way they visit is... Uh, is they, are, they do pay attention. If you say you belong to such and such church, they pay attention as to what your church is doing by how you're reflecting. They, they pay attention to where you're going or if you're engaged in a service opportunity. They, they pay attention to your rhythm at Christmas and Easter. And there are people that are they're visiting your church before they ever visit your church. Another classic example of this is just a church website. Yes. Um, uh, Ten years ago, I wouldn't talk much about this. I would today because most even... Uh, most every church has some semblance of a church website, and the reality is most people visit your website before they visit your church. And there are churches that give more attention to their landscaping when they really should be giving it to their website, because people go just to find out time, location, so on and so forth. And so there is already messaging happening out there in cyberspace, just something to think about. We won't spend a lot of time there. Well, I, let me just say real ahead, quick, yeah. when we do a new member luncheon, and we ask, what was your first, uh, over 70% of the people who visit our church visited our website before they ever came to our church, over 70%. And in our, uh, in our interviews, we, in our new member orientations, uh, well over, I think eight out, of, eight out of every 10 people have it listened to at least one message online before they visit the church. That they do, they, they, they are listening to what the preacher says. By the way, Leadership Network says, in the first eight weeks of attending a church, somebody is making their decision on whether or not to return strictly on what they observe from the children's ministry and what they observe in the worship assembly because they don't know many people yet. Now, whether or not somebody sticks with a church for more than a year has to do with whether or not they make one friend in that church. Okay? So, but we're just talking about the front door right now uh, in many ways. And so the, the website is a, is an illustration in terms of people evaluating church, even listening to the messaging of the church in that regard, just something to think about. Um, but let me say this too, the greatest way to kill a product, I'm going to work over here in marketing. Now, the greatest way to kill a product is to do great marketing of a bad product. Mm -hmm. You can have a lousy cheeseburger, and have tremendous marketing that just convinces more and more people to try the cheeseburger before it's ready. You understand what I'm saying? 
McDonald's learned this in the 60s. Before the Big Mac, they tried the pineapple sandwich. They did marketing of it. And they tried to sell everybody the pineapple sandwich. They, nobody wanted it. Great marketing of a bad product. I know, please, I know it's offensive to talk about the gospel and assemblies as a product. I'm not saying that. Just go with me here. What I'm saying is a lot of people spend a ton of energy on their website and their outside stuff, and they don't talk about the inside of the cup and work on the inside of the cup. That's what we're talking about primarily here. Let's go back to the inside of the cup. Um, not only will it help us bringing somebody to church, but also we also need to assume there are people in our midst in a public worship assembly that have just come in. You've hung your shingle out. You advertise public worship assemblies. And people come into the life of a church, believe it or not, they're going through a divorce, a bankruptcy, they're desperate, they're going through pain. God is pursuing them. They've had a dream. I mean, it's, and there are, any given weekend, you need to assume there are de-churched or unchurched mm -hmm. or lost people in your service. And by the way, I'm well aware you could be quite churched and quite lost. Mm -hmm. But I'm just saying, you need to assume there are people among us in our midst. That old sign that says you're now entering the mission field, it's an awesome sign in one sense in helping people to live intentionally when they leave. But in some ways, we need to strike the sign because the mission field is also underneath our noses when we gather. When you hang out a shingle, when you advertise your worship services, when people know you're having a gathering on Sunday morning, somebody's going to be in your midst who doesn't know much, has no working knowledge of the church, uh, and may be seeking the Lord. So you need to assume they're in the room. That's one thing we've tried to recover. When I'm writing a sermon, there's a part of me that's always thinking about somebody who's there for the first time. Uh, and that is, that's a core navigational aid for me that I'm thinking through as I'm writing, um, as I'm writing a sermon. Um, I, I get, here are three questions just to think through when you think about people like this in your midst, if you're assuming they're in the room. One is, what do they see? Rick's talked about that. What do they see? Um, do we look like we're expecting guests? Um, and do guests see themselves? Now, this isn't the only question you're asking, but just we're thinking through this. One of our services at our church is an early service at our South Campus, Farmers Branch Campus. It's primarily a service where um, there, let's, let's say there are more mature, advanced, and aged saints there. And so that's most of the greeters, let's say. But we also have young couples and young families coming because their babies are up. And it just hit us one day, we probably ought to have some young couples and young families involved on the greeting and the receiving end. Just an example of thinking through, what do they see um, uh, up in the life of the church and even up on the platform? Number two, what do they hear? Um, a third question is, what do they experience? And I used my example of the meet and greet time, how it was a disaster for the guests we were bringing who weren't being spoken to. Mm -hmm. So what, what, do they, what do they experience? Here's, let me give you another example of this. We have a rule among our elders and staff um, that they're not to talk to one another around the public gathering times. Because what happens is you have a couple of elders in a conversation for 12 or 15 minutes in between services when they're, at the very least, there may be other hurting members in the lobby they need to check in on, but not only that, there are always strangers moving in and out of the lobby. And so we try not allow our staff or elders to talk to one another in and around the services. 
to have their antennas up and looking for unfamiliar people uh, or people in the flock that they're not having much contact with. Does that make sense? Because a lot of times you get sucked into these by-the-way conversations uh, that don't need to be happening in that time out of a concern for what are people experiencing. Um, I'll turn it over to you, Ken. So um, what we're saying here is expect lost people to come. Expect them to come. And so that means I'm going to check my insider language. I'm going to be careful to really, we, we go over every announcement. I walk through what I said in my sermon, and I get rid of insider language. Simple example, uh, I took a golf lesson from a, a teaching pro. He didn't help me any with my golf, but I helped him because I invited him to church. Okay, so we have a service and uh, sermons on David doing something, and the guest speaker just alluded to Bathsheba, okay? Just alluded to Bathsheba, and everyone snickered. After the service, I talked to my, my guest. What'd you think? David had an affair? Yeah, the Bathsheba story. You ought to check it out. Here's what he said. I hate it when y'all do that. Now, so what do you mean? I hate it when I come to church and you make me feel stupid. I don't ever do that anymore. I, I look through my sermon and I ask myself, how much insider language is there? The greeting team. Do you have a greeters at your church? One preacher told me one time, we do. They're our first line of defense against visitors. Um, <laughs> your, your, your greeting team needs to reflect intergenerational diversity. It needs to reflect ethnic diversity. And they need to be trained and coached, Okay. In other words, you don't say to that mama with those two little babies, yeah, our nursery's around the corner down the stairs. You walk with her, and you make sure she has a great first experience, okay? Your child care, I don't care how great your preacher is. If your children's ministry stinks, you are taking the ball, and you're getting a holding penalty every play, okay? You are not going to reach people in your community if your children's ministry is second-rate. You want that little three-year-old running out of church who's never been and say, Mama, that was fun. Can we come next time? Okay. If you're not spending money on your children's ministry, repent. Um, who do they see? So uh, my, my, uh, my largest campus is in a community that's changing very much ethnically. So I had talking groups, uh, four or five different talking groups and living rooms with people of color. And I asked them this simple question. What's the most important thing we could do at our church that would say to you, you're welcome in my church? And I got the same answer every time. Will I see anybody on the stage that looks like me? Now think about that. Do the people on your stage reflect your community? Because if your community visits, they notice, even if you didn't. Okay? Um... And then I think it's important to acknowledge the lost person among you in, in the way you especially preach. In other words, number one, you welcome doubt. You acknowledge doubt and say, you're welcome here with those questions. You don't make people feel stupid. And so instead of just saying, it's like everyone knows Paul said, and, you know, there was a guy named Paul. And he wrote some letters, and one of them was to this church in Ephesus. And in that letter, this is what he said. You make sure people don't feel stupid. And so you, you 
And you acknowledge, now some of you, that, might, that whole Jonah thing, you acknowledge for some people, I don't know if I buy that or not. You can do that and still go ahead and make your point. But you think through, if I was a lost person and I was hearing this for the first time, what would I, what would I wonder? You acknowledge the questions and the doubts and the suspicions and just the confusion of the people that you're trying to reach. You don't humiliate them. You don't make them feel dumb. And the truth is, we're not trying to do that on purpose, but we're doing it more than we realize. So that's one thing that I really think is critical. You expect lost people to come. Now, please understand, I am not talking about pretending we're not a church. So if you come to my church, you're going to hear words like sin and repentance and blood and grace. You're going to know you're at a church. But I'm going to know you're there, and I'm going to make sure I'm going to talk about the things I talk about in a language you can understand. Okay? All right. So that going to goes right into then. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit for about preaching and about creating gospel moments. Um, I, I really appreciate what you said at the end there because there is plenty of offense in the gospel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> plenty yeah. of offense in the gospel. And there is, uh, that's the other thing you'll find out too, that as you have people in your midst and you know you're going somewhere when you have people who are offended, but it's by the gospel. Okay. Um, with my Jewish lady across the street that's been with us for a year, when she talks about, she broke down the other night in our small group and she began to talk about, uh, we, I just asked her, where are you with Jesus right now? And she just broke down and started weeping. She says, Chris, I am more passionate, I'm more curious, I'm more captivated by him than I, than I was 12 months ago. But you don't understand, it is a really big deal to surrender your life to someone. And I'm like, you get it more than 95% of our people get it. She says, this is a huge message to swallow that I can't save myself, and I needed God to do that. She's dealing with this message of offense. There's plenty of offense in the gospel. There's plenty of times where you're going to be the church. We're talking about removing all the other stuff that we do that we don't even realize that's offensive that we don't even realize that's tripping people up so that they can we can save all our chips for that does that make sense um so uh one of the things that's a product of just that you want to assume if if people are in your midst is we we want to have a gospel moment that's what we call it Mm -hmm. in every service about a gospel moment maybe it's in the sermon maybe it's not where we take a couple of moments and acknowledge, articulate the, the gospel of Jesus' life, death, resurrection. By this gospel, we are saved. Um, a lot of times, that is what sets up our moment of communion in our context. Communion is your weekly communion is a great friend to having a weekly gospel moment. You say, well, yeah, but isn't the sermon a gospel moment? Yes and no, because there are times where you're doing series or you are doing teaching for the church that is a matter of a little complexity at times where you're dealing with a matter 
And you need to have a time where you're able to lift your head out of that and have a gospel moment where you speak of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and the difference it can make for our life. Amen? And so communion can be that moment at times. Uh, it is for us in our services. There are times in my sermon toward the end where I may zoom out and I may say, you know what, a lot of what I talked today may not have made much sense to you. And that may have been the fault of the preacher. Or it may not have made much sense to you because it's not where your head and where your heart is. But what we want you to understand before you leave the place is, boom. But having some kind of conscious gospel moment in your service, and communion can be a friend to that, obviously, or even in the sermon. Some sermons are more friendly to whole gospel moments than others. We understand that. But thinking through, what is our gospel moment in the service? There are times where we embed a video testimony. Uh, somewhere in the service where somebody is, is just tells the story of their journey with Jesus and what a difference Jesus has made in their life. And that becomes a gospel moment. Um, I'll stop yeah, right there. I can't emphasize that enough. I mean, that, that is intentional. That doesn't just accidentally happen. For every weekend service, where's our gospel moment? Uh, I might be preaching on stewardship, but I might find a moment in that to say, okay, because, and I'll get to the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, okay? Or we'll do it during communion. Or I may have our host get up and just read something from Paul briefly and say, you know, thank you for being here today. This is who we are. We're people that own a particular story. And that story could be summed up and he just will. But we're going to make sure you cannot possibly visit our church just one time and not hear what we are defined by. That we believe this man named Jesus was the Son of God, that he died on a cross, that he was buried, that he was raised from the dead as Savior and Lord. You're going to hear that story every single week. We, our people know if I bring my friend to church, they're not going to leave and wonder what is it we believe. Okay, so we create those gospel moments. Now, let's talk a little bit about preaching. Um, and so as, uh, what can we do as a preachers to create a more evangelic culture? Well, we've already said some things that we do. Oh, number one, uh, at least uh, I'm very specific about having a series at least every year or two that equips my people to share their faith. We have a phrase at our church. It's called tell your one. We've used it for years. We have it on the walls. Uh, when you come to our church, if you see someone baptizing someone, very likely you're going to hear, this is my one. And we just are very upfront about that. I'll even say in sermons, hey, uh, if you hear this phrase, tell your one, you may tell, am I your one? Just know they love you. If you're someone's one, it's because they care so much that you meet the most important person who's ever lived. But, but uh, so I, I do these series about once every year or two where we talk about, let's, let's, let's take a few weeks, let's get some training on how to reach our one. I will do series at least once a year, if not twice, intentionally for your friend where I'll just say this next series is going to be so powerful for your unchurched friend to hear I'm in one right now I launched it on Easter weekend I'm doing a series called epic grace uh, no matter how big your fail is grace is bigger and so for several weeks I just told the folks you bring your friend to Easter they are going to hear the gospel and for these next several weeks your friend is going to learn you cannot possibly send yourself outside the reach of the grace of God. Amen. This is going to be a great series for unchurched people. 
So I will let the church know that's coming. But that's very intentional on my part that every year I'll have at least one, if not two series that are very specifically targeted to help people move closer to Christ. Just tied to that, the timing of that I've learned over time is important. I'm very much a believer in doing that kind of series beginning of the year in January, uh, right after Easter, um, uh, before the end of the school year, between Easter and the school year, and then probably another one in August, which is the beginning of the school year again, August, September. For us in our rhythm, we have found that people are more apt to come when their friend invites them. First of the year to an Easter service, and maybe we can get their friend to return for a couple Sundays after Easter, and then beginning of the school year, people want to get back in a rhythm. And we've just found that as well as Christmas. Those are some windows that we've tried to put series in that might be a little more friendly uh, in that way. For instance, I did a series on depression and suicide last August uh, that, that a lot of people from the community came to. It's the beginning of the school year. We embedded it there. His series, Epic, uh, Fail, or, uh, Epic Grace, is awesome for post-Easter. I'm sorry we talked it about it. Your series fail. is not an epic fail. Um, <laughs> but these are examples of kind of embedding series during certain times of year that might be friendly to somebody saying, yeah, I'll come with my friend to that. Now, this next thing I'm going to say might be a little disturbing to some of you. I'm not trying to criticize your church, but I visit a lot of churches that no longer make an ask. Preacher gets up and just says, okay, thank you very much. Let's all bow. And we just all, it's almost like we're afraid to offer invitations anymore. And, and I, I do not understand that. Uh, I, I'm going to make an ask. And in fact, I'm going to make a big ask. I got really convicted about this uh, about 20 years ago. Most of you have heard a name, Rick Warren. And uh, he was in Fort Worth, and uh, he was friends with a fellow that uh, was on my daughter's soccer team that I coached. And he said, would you like to meet Rick Warren? I said, yeah, I'll squeeze that in. So um, (laughs) we went to a popular Mexican restaurant in, um, and this was in October. And he just, he mentioned that that, weekend before at Saddleback Church, they had their thousandth baptism for that year. And it was a quadriplegic. And he had four pastors carry the person in their chair into the baptistry, baptized them. Rick took pictures. And the next week showed the pictures of this man in a wheelchair getting baptized and said to everybody, now if that guy can get baptized, why haven't you gotten baptized yet? Now I'm thinking as he's talking in my mind, I probably believe in the necessity of baptism more than you do. Why are you asking people harder than I am? So I just kind of repented and said, I'm going to make it real clear the next several weeks what I want you to do. In the next two months, we had 60 baptisms in my church. Those people were out there the whole time. And I wasn't making it clear what I expected them to do. So I'm very strong about this now. So I don't know why I... Uh, I just had a sense recently uh, after a, a service that, that no, and no one responded that something was going on. So I just got back up and said, I'm sorry, but there's a spirit of fear in this room. And I named it and I prayed against it. I said, I'm going to say it again. Some people need to come accept Christ today. Four people came and got baptized. Last Sunday in our third service, uh, which is our, when our, most of our guests come, as I, same thing. I just said the sense during the invitation time, I'm talking about Adam and Eve and their epic fail and how God gave them clothes. And I said, some of you need some new clothes. 
And Galatians 3 says when you put on Christ, it's like putting on new clothes. You can't make your clothes, but you have to put them on. So this is your moment. Right now, I want you to come and ask Jesus for some new clothes. Seven people got up and got baptized. They wouldn't have done that if I'd have just said, thank you, God, for making our clothes. Now let's all bow with prayer. I want you just to ask yourself at your church, are you making it really clear to people that you're wanting, you're praying, you're expecting, and you're showing them how to get closer to Jesus? Preachers, you need to make a big ask. You need to do it all the time. Okay. Well, there are, there, are way, there are ways to just to think through how you do the ask. A lot of times I preach into communion. And, and so communion is a response to the message, and I give people a few questions to reflect on for my message during communion. And then out of communion, we come up, and before we dismiss the service, we ask people to, to come forward to receive people and then move into a time of prayer or response to baptism. There are different ways to do that, but take some time to think through how, when we make the ask, how do we make the ask, and being very clear as to what we would ask people to do if they would like to process with somebody or respond to somebody or talk with somebody, and to do that relentlessly every weekend and just work your plan, your routine. I have been guilty at times of not making the ask. I got away from this from a long time because I thought nobody wants to do the walk of shame. And uh, I, I, but I've learned over times through trials and error, there are ways you can do this. This happens through practice over time and it, it becomes part of the culture of your church again. Um, and it's worth it to make the ask. And sometimes it will be surprising to you in so many ways. I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell a story about Oral Roberts here. Or, and uh, Oral Roberts was once asked, I can't believe I'm telling this story, he was once asked, he said, why is it that, you, that when you pray, it seems like more people get healed when you pray? And Oral Roberts said this. I'm going somewhere with this evangelistically. Oral said, it's the biggest misnomer in the Christian world. He said, the reality is I've just probably prayed for more sick people than anyone else. I've just prayed percentage-wise for more sick people. He says, it's God that's done the healing when he's done the healing. He says, I just probably have asked more than most. I would say that same thing evangelistically. You know? You would be surprised how many people have turned me down with an invitation to come to church. And it hurts to be told no. I hate being told no. I'm a people pleaser. But I've just decided, you know what? They got more to gain than I got to lose. Mm -hmm. And you know what? Sometimes you need to be told no to get a little leather on your hide. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And to realize it's not going to kill you to be told no. And you know what? I, there are times when I make the ask and nobody responds. So that I'm yeah. left questioning myself and what a lousy freak going through all of that. You know what? It's still worth making the ask it is. for all the times that people do respond. Yeah, and, and, and your, your people brought a guest and you made that big ask. And, you, and they didn't, he sat there. But yep. They went out to lunch and they had something to talk about. That's exactly right. You started a conversation. You planted a seed. And, and, uh, and they watched... Although they sat still, they watched two people walk down and get baptized. And they watched a church celebrate that. And, and that seed was planted. Make the ask. And by the way, um, one of the things that's so strong about our tradition is our high view of baptism. Why aren't we talking about it more? Why aren't we giving people a chance every time we gather to get baptized? Uh, when we remodeled our uh, worship center 
the, I inherited a room. The bathroom was way at the back. It was hard to find. I don't remember this guy. I, the architect said, what we've got to change about this room? Get that baptistry. Get it out there in front. And I want you to walk in the room. And one of the first things you notice is, that must be something they care about. And we, our architecture, our look says, we hope you wind up there. Uh, and put some good light on your baptistry, please. Let people be able to see it. Put that thing up on the screen. That, that's, that leads to the, we're going to go quick here because we've got a couple more things. Celebrate what you want. Celebrate what, the church knows what you value by what you celebrate. So celebrate your baptism. Celebrate people coming to Christ. Um, use testimonies. Your church is full of them. If you, if you haven't had a lot of people come to Christ recently, find some people in your church who have a great story of why they came to Christ. You, you don't have to have a big uh, graphics department to do this. You have an iPhone, and you can get a capture, a testimony, and put it up there. But I, I can't tell you the power of that. I, I, we, we hardly go more than several weeks that we don't have a really strong testimony. and Because we're saying to the church, that's the win. And, it that's is. what we want. And we're saying to the person who's visiting, that's what we hope happens in your life too. So you, you get people to aim at what you celebrate. Are you celebrating the stories of life change in your church? Tied to that, you also want your people to know, hey, I can be a part of a story like this. We try and get the people uh, who were instrumental in this person's journey with Jesus to be in the water with them. Absolutely. And so you, you'll find women baptizing people in, in our services in that way. You'll find we'll have, we'll have lay people in there and because we want other people out there in the, in the seats to know, hey, I know I, I sell insurance with that guy who's in the water with his buddy. You know, I can, man, if the Lord could use him, maybe he can use me. And so we try to get the people who've been instrumental in the person's story with Jesus to actually be in the water with them and then tell the story in a few minutes of what brought them to this decision. Uh, if you're just dunking people without telling the story, and I'm not just talking about the story of Jesus, I'm talking about that person's story, you're missing a golden moment. Because this is part of testifying here. And the church learning, wow, God used that to bring this person to that and when you're able to tell stories like this person came to the Christmas candlelight service 12 months ago. Okay, this we're person came to the Easter fast. service. That's an example. Yeah. Uh, we're going to go real fast um, because we have two things. And one thing I wish we could spend 20 minutes on and we're not going to. Maybe it's, maybe it's safe for us if we don't because we want to talk about music for a second. But uh, first, maximize special events. We've learned this has tremendous evangelist potential. Um, we have at our church twice a year what we call baptism weekends. Uh, and we just announced, hey, we're going to have baptism weekend. We just put it up for five, six weeks. Now, we baptize every week at our church. We never have a weekend without baptisms. But there's something about baptism weekend that causes people to think, I haven't been baptized. We have baptism classes. We'll go to baptism class. Uh, baptism weekend coming up. You can invite your family, invite your friends, have them come see. And, and it's a big deal to lost people. Uh, and so we take advantage of baptism weekends. And, and we've had as few as 20 and as many as 80 people get baptized on a baptism weekend. Um, we maximize Easter, obviously. And, and um, yeah, I'm sure your church does. But my guess is a lot of your churches aren't taking advantage of Christmas. Um, we have Christmas Eve services. We see a 60% hike in attendance 
Christmas Eve. 3,000 extra people. It requires something of us. It requires something of the staff. But what an amazing opportunity to tell the story of Jesus. And, and so we ask ourselves, what are those times in the calendar when a lost person might be more likely to receive an invitation? And, and there is something at the Christmas season about saying to your friend, hey, my church, we're having a candlelight service and uh, the music's going to be awesome. Uh, would you like to come? That just works for us. And we see after Easter and after Christmas, we see a hike in conversions because we've been maximized special events. You know, Paul says in Colossians chapter 4, we're to make the most of every opportunity. And we still live in a culture that acknowledges Christmas, acknowledges Easter at some level, at least in the South. So we're just trying to make the most of that opportunity in that regard. Hey, I've got an idea. I wonder if we need to say this last piece and just start off with it tomorrow because it's 928. Or maybe think? we just talk about it for two minutes and that way we can't get shot. Um, okay. <laughs> All right, okay. You know what? We'll introduce it, and then we'll make a decision. We'll pray about it, and that's what we've been talking about. Okay. We, we think music is absolutely uh, critical to creating an evangelical culture. Uh, and, uh, and by the way, uh, this is not going to be a conversation about old songs versus new songs. I don't care if songs are old. I don't care if they're new. I want them to be good songs. I want them to have songs that have strong theology, I'm sorry, but uh, a song isn't great just because it's new, and a song isn't uh, uh, laudable. Just, do Lord, oh do Lord, oh do remember me, oh Lordy, is not going to make it in the Hall of Fame, okay? <laughs> so just because a song is old doesn't make it special. I want the song to be a gospel moment, okay? And so music is powerful. It is powerful in our culture. And, and we've got to ask hard questions in our churches about how can we maximize the power of music to tell the greatest story ever. Now, most of you know, I'm sure, we're at churches that made a decision to incorporate instrumental praise. We have an a cappella service at each of our churches, but most of our services use instrumental praise, and over 90% of our baptisms are in our instrumental services. Now, uh, Maybe tomorrow we'll talk about if you're a cappella. Here's some things we've learned you can do yeah. to, to help. But, uh, but let me just say real quick, one of the mistakes that we get all the time is churches calling us saying, we're in decline, and so we're going to get a bad band up there to fix things. <laughs> there are thousands of churches that are in America that are dying that have a band. Yes. Okay? Yes. So... We didn't go to a band because we want to be hip or cool. We did it for a mission reason. Getting a band is not the end. You have, we asked the question, and we concluded that having instrumental praise was a means to the end of helping people come to Christ. And in our context, it's worse. But I'm just begging you, don't start the conversation about instrumental yeah. music if it's the end. Because if the only thing worse... Then no. bad acapella is bad instrumental. Yeah, that's right. We could talk about that more. And yeah. if your leadership isn't sold out to a mission, and if you haven't created a burden in your church for reaching lost people, yes. it's going to go bad. Right. If you don't have a burden in your church for reaching lost people, anytime you propose a change, it's just going to be arguments about who gets church the way we want it. 
and that's what most of our churches are fussing about, is who gets church the way we want it, instead of what are we going to do at church to go reach the people Jesus wants. Okay? So that's where we're going to close, and tomorrow we're going to do our best to have some time for questions. Thank you very much. God bless you. Amen.